Okay, good morning. We are the faithful remnant braving the roads and the ice. <laughs> okay, let us pray. Father in heaven, at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, you proclaimed him your beloved Son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit. Make all who are baptized into his name faithful in their calling as your children and inheritors with him of everlasting life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. Uh, congregation at prayer. The verse of the week is from Matthew chapter 6. This is kind of a long... Let's speak this together. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right. So here's the first question that I have for you. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Who is the he that his refers to? Jesus. Okay. Yes, you're right. But where is Jesus in the kingdom of God? Yes! Oh boy, you guys, you're getting this, and I'm really proud of you. The kingdom of God is Jesus. And really what it is is the combination of the person of Jesus and the act of the crucifixion. The combination of the person of Jesus and the act of the crucifixion. That's the kingdom of God. Uh, so when you read the Bible and it says things about the kingdom of God or when the kingdom of God shall come to you, uh, that's talking to Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. Salvation is here. And it's in the flesh and blood of Jesus. That's different than the kingdom of the heavens. Those are two different things. The kingdom of God is Jesus. Now that adds a whole new level too when you pray the Lord's Prayer and you say, Thy kingdom come. Because the kingdom has come in Christ, and you pray that in this petition God would continue to allow His kingdom to come. That He would continually send His Son to you uh, for your salvation and for your faith and for your benefit. So seek first the kingdom of God, that is, seek first Christ and His righteousness. Why do you seek His righteousness? Because yours is... We okay, yeah, correct, correct. The righteousness that you think that you have isn't all that great. You need somebody else's righteousness if you're going to be anything in the eyes of God, which is what you want. So you seek the righteousness of Christ. And all these things shall be added to you. Now, this is not to, we don't want to preach what is called the prosperity gospel, which is uh, a fancy word for what you hear from televangelists. That, hey, if you believe in Jesus, if you just become a Christian, hey, then you'll be rich. 
give more money to me, believe in Jesus harder, and everything in life will go well for you. You'll be rich, you'll have everything you want. That's not what this means. The righteousness of Christ will be added to you, and all the gifts of God, salvation, and life will be added to you. But that doesn't always mean that what you're going to have in your earthly life is comfort. In fact, when you're baptized, it really means that you're in for more discomfort from the world than comfort. But it doesn't matter because you have even, even greater comfort in the things that God gives. You know that God will give you daily bread. You know that, according to the first article, God continues to care for you. So you can be confident knowing that you might not have everything that you want, but you have everything that you will need. And within the corporate body of the church, you'll be cared for as well. Okay? You have mercy. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is also uh, a nice way of saying, give us this day our daily bread. We don't pray the Lord's Prayer one time. Make sure, Lord, that you give me my bread for the rest of my life. Amen. It's daily. What else is daily? Okay, yes. And uh, repentance, uh, repentance from your sins stems from what salvific event in your life? Baptism. baptism. Think about what the catechism says about baptism. The old man is how often? Drowned? Daily. daily. He is drowned daily and dies daily. And you pray daily. Give us this day our daily bread. Tomorrow can come tomorrow, but today we're going to worry about our daily things. Follow Jesus. Go where he goes. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Sufficient for today is what today brings. Okay, let's speak this again. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. The vision for the day is its own trouble. Okay, the Catechism, uh, the Tenth Commandment. What is the Tenth Commandment? You, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, or animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. Okay, the difference between the Ninth and the Tenth Commandments. Now, I came from the Reformed tradition, which has, you shall not covet, as the Tenth Commandment. Uh, so it took me a long time to get used to you shall not covet your neighbor's house and you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. His uh, wife, manservant, maidservant. Okay, so the main difference between the ninth and the tenth commandment is this. The ninth commandment deals mostly with material goods. Your neighbor's house. And when you look at the explanation from the small catechism, it deals with possessions, money, and income, which ties back to which commandment? 
possessions, money, and income. What other commandment? Yes, thou shalt not steal. Okay, so material goods. The tenth commandment deals with more than that. It's, uh, I don't want to use the word goods because you know, I don't want to make objects of people, but that's sort of what it is. The personal goods, the people goods, the, the people in your life, uh, persons. And really, if you want to boil it down to its most simple point, it's coveting your neighbor's things, the things that your neighbor has, his possessions, versus coveting your neighbor's life. Your neighbor's wife and who he has surrounded him, you can covet that too. The relationships uh, that he has, the persons that he is surrounded with and that he has. Okay, So, you don't entice or force away any of these people, and you don't turn them against him. Because you, it would be so easy to say, well, I didn't turn, or I didn't uh, entice or force them away. I sort of maybe spread a little bit of bad Eighth Commandment talk, and then now they don't like that person anymore. But, you know, that was their decision to choose whether they wanted to like him or not. No, that's still enticing away or turning against so, uh, you don't, another paraphrase of this here, entice, force away, turn them against him. Don't do it in a way that only appears right. And now we talked about that with the seventh commandment. It doesn't matter if you're the one who walks in and says, well, I wanted this and now it's mine. If you think about it, it's done. If you plan about it, it's done. If you have somebody else do it, but you pulled the strings, it's done. And it's on you. So don't do it even in a way that only appears right. Urge them to stay and to do their duty. To stay and do their duty ties to which other commandment? The fourth commandment. And, of course, the first commandment as well. To stay and do their duty. Why? Because... It matters little what they want. It matters more what God would desire of them. Questions? Yes? On the 10th commandment, yes. could a person uh, interpret, don't covet anything in your neighbors that has life? Yes, absolutely. Don't covet the neighbor's goods and don't covet anything that is your neighbor's that has life, soul, and dignity. Life, soul, and or dignity. Yes, absolutely. So, this is a sort of thin ice example, but uh, the couple that can't conceive looks at their neighbor who has 12 children and covets their neighbor's children. There is an example of the 10th commandment that's different than the 9th commandment because children are not material things. They are lives and persons. Okay, any other questions? Okay, to Sunday school. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Children are not material goods unless it's tax season and then they are. Just don't render unto Caesar. Okay. We're a week behind.
And I have to confess to you that it's because I'm jealous. And that's my sin. Uh, because I wasn't here last week, which would have been the first Sunday of the month, and I wanted to be the one to teach you the hymn. <laughs> so I just pushed it back by a week. So we're going to learn a new hymn. We're done with the TLH hymn for Christmas, because we're done with Christmas. And it's okay to sing the Christmas hymn up to last week, because Epiphany is still technically within the Christmas season, Christmas tide. The last day of Christmas is the Epiphany. Uh, so this is one, it, uh, if you have your hymnal, it's number 403, and this is sort of a new one, in tune, not in text, as you'll see. O Savior of our fallen race. Uh, this is uh, an epiphany hymn. It's an old epiphany hymn. The text is a Latin text, uh, as with many of the hymns in our hymnal. If it's, if it's a hymn that comes from before the Reformation, although some of them even from the Reformation are this way too, but primarily if it's one that is older than the Reformation, it, it's a Latin hymn from the Latin church. Latin is the language of the church. You know, up until the 1960s, even in the Roman Catholic Church, they still said mass in Latin. And you also have some Latin and some Greek in your mass here uh, because you have things like introit, which is Latin. You have offertory. You have uh, Kyrie eleison, which is Latin and Greek. Pardon me? The Tadeum. Yep, the Tadeum. So uh, all of these, Phos Hilaron, uh, all of these titles and names of things during the service, it really comes from the Latin. Latin is sort of the pillar of the church. It's the church's language. So uh, here's this hymn. This is from the 6th century. It's a Latin hymn uh, that was translated by a Lutheran. And we, we have it in our hymnal now, too. Uh, there is another hymn with the same tune, and if you have your hymnal, you can turn to it, and they're both really, really good hymns. Uh, this one is sort of by an anonymous author, I believe, uh, from the 6th century, translated by in, uh, oof, I don't know, the 1970s or so, something like that, so relatively new. And then 874, I think, is the other one, 874. Yeah, O Splendor of God's Glory Bright. Now this hymn is by Ambrose of Milan. That's from the 4th century. Um, Ambrose is sort of the father of Augustine. St. Augustine from the 5th century became a Christian later on in life because he was really impressed at St. Ambrose and his ability to teach. He said, all of these Christians that I've talked to are kind of dumb. Uh, they can't explain anything like a philosopher or like an intellectual. They just say the same kind of things and then I have all these questions and they can't answer my questions. So I think Christianity is dumb. And then he met Ambrose of Milan and he said, never mind, Christianity's not dumb. This man is answering all my questions. So Ambrose is one of the, there are uh, what we call pillar fathers of the church, doctrinal fathers of the church. Ambrose and Augustine are both uh, uh, in that count. Um, Ambrose wrote a lot of hymns. Augustine didn't write many hymns, at least not that we know of, but Ambrose did. And this is another one. 
uh, and it's just a fantastic hymn, but it has the same tune. So this class today and this hymn of the month is also pulling double duty because you're getting two for the price of one, uh, right? So you should look at the text of 874 because we're not going to do that today, but look at the text and uh, uh, read through and, and meditate on it sometime because it's really good text. We only have time for one. Uh, so the tune then, I told you it's a new tune. It was at least copyrighted in 2002. Uh, I don't know if that's when it was written, that's when it was copyrighted, by a gentleman named Stephen Johnson, who is a lay person. He lives out on the East Coast and teaches music uh, in, New in New York City, actually. And he used to have a company called Liturgy Solutions, uh, which composed and published hymn tunes, hymn settings, and chant tones and settings, just a, a liturgical music resource. And they actually uh, shut down uh, because of tax laws in New York City. So they couldn't, they couldn't keep operating. So that's no longer in business, but he, he did a lot of work with them. He lives uh, in New York City, like I said, pretty close actually to where my sister and her husband live. In fact, there was one day I, my sister texted out a picture, I think, and she said, oh, no big deal, we're just babysitting Stephen Johnson's dog, and then we're going out for lunch with him. Uh, so <laughs> he's out there. Uh, really nice guy, I've met him before, a good composer. And as you see, the tune is different. It's not a, it's not a German chorale. And for those of you who are in the choir, it's not either one of those English carols. You can tell the difference between the German music and the English music and the Norwegian music. There's a couple Norwegian hymns in here too. And uh, you, you can tell the difference between all of them because they sound completely different. And then there's stuff like this, which is a brand new tune and you can tell it sounds different. It has sort of a chant-like quality to it. Um, but it's different, and, and we'll go over that in just a little bit. Stephen Johnson has four hymn settings in this hymnal. He did a lot with the LSB project when it was being worked on and when it was published. So he, uh, he has four settings in the hymnal, which is kind of a lot for a new composer. So he's good at what he does. Now, to the text. See, I don't have any fun things because the, the tune is so new, I can't tell you all about how Bach used it or how whoever else used it. <laughs> so we just have to take it for what it is. Um, we'll look at the text, but I want to start with looking at some of these scripture passages. Some of these are the ones that the hymnal lists as being uh, derivatives for the text. Others are ones that I found and said that the text also references. So we're going to look first at Numbers chapter 24, which is such a great text. I can't wait to talk about this with you for so many reasons. Uh, the first one is that Numbers 24 falls into the whole period of Balaam. Do you remember about Balaam? This is one of those, see, you got to read the Old Testament. Because if all you ever do is remember the Sunday school lessons about the Old Testament, you're going to miss so much. You have to just sit down and read it. And actually, I've thought about designing my own Sunday school curriculum that is nothing but the unknown stories of the Old Testament. 
because it would go through all these stories that nobody really remembers and that nobody really knows, but that are really, really cool and sometimes a little bit weird. Uh, and, the, and Balaam is one of those. Uh, there's one really, really famous part of the story of Balaam, and that's Balaam's ass. And that, by that I mean, of course, his donkey. Uh, but that's how it's known, Balaam's ass. And it's okay to say that word, of course, because it's in the Bible. So there you go. King James English. Uh, but, so he is traveling, he's hired by a foreign nation to curse the Israelites, to put a curse on them. And I mentioned this a little bit when we talked about the first or uh, second commandment, because the name of God has power, and the Lord says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And Balaam has, there has been coin exchanged, and he's, he's going to go put a curse on them. And the Lord says no, but he does it in a, an interesting way. Is any of this bringing the story back? He's walking on a narrow pass with his donkey, with his ass, and an angel of the Lord appears with a flaming sword in his hand. And Balaam does not see it, but the donkey does. Yeah, now it's... And, and he stops, and he beats his animal and tries to get him to go and yells at him and... He won't go because the angel bars the way. Which sounds an awful lot like what Old Testament narrative? The fall. Because, remember, God kicks them out of the garden, which is, if I had to ask you this question, is that law or is that gospel, what would you say? Okay, that's what most people would say. Yeah, see, well, and this is, it's a, a double test. The first test is to see if you remember what I warned you about. Anytime a pastor says, is this law or is this gospel? If he's, say, if he's asking the question seriously, he's uh, misinformed. And if he's asking it ironically, it's a trap for you. And you should just say, it's both. Uh, okay, so really, it's both. Most people would look at that and say that it's law. And actually, I think most Lutheran pastors would even teach and preach that that's punishment for sins. They, they punished, or they're, they're, uh, they trespassed against God's law, and now they're being punished, they're being kicked out of the garden. Is that true? Yes, it is. However, there's a flip side to that coin, which is this. If Adam and Eve, who now are sinners and who now will die, eat from the tree of life in the garden, what will happen to them? They won't die. It's the paradox of them being in a state of eternal death and eternal life at the same time. Now think about that for a second. You're in a sinful body that cannot stand in the presence of God, that faces the judgment of God and is consumed by it, a body that dies and gets old and rots and decays away, but you can't die. You're immortal in a state of death. That's hell. Being perpetually consumed by divine wrath for eternity. That's a bad thing. And God does not want that. So lest Adam and Eve, now after having fallen, eat of a tree of life, they are removed from the garden until the time at which it is proper for them to eat of the 
fruit of life. And this is so great now because what is the fruit of life? Jesus. It's Jesus. Yeah. Christ on the cross is the new tree of life. And the fruit from that tree is the flesh and blood that he gives. The time when it starts to be okay again to eat from the tree of life is after the crucifixion when he says, hey, take, eat, take, drink. That now you get to eat of it because now it's okay. Uh, so the angel bars the way. In fact, there's one of the uh, hymns at the Lessons and Carol service that we sang. One of the stanzas says, The angel bars the way no more. Because Christ has died, Christ has redeemed you, Christ has given you the new fruit. It's okay for you to go into the new garden and eat the new fruit. The angel doesn't bar the way anymore. So anyway, uh, the angel bars the way for Balaam with flaming sword. And the donkey sees, which only uh, deepens my opinion that animals often are able to see that which man is not, or at least perceive that which man is not able to perceive. So we are smart, but sometimes we're so smart that we're dumb. We go full circle. Uh, and then what happens? He's beating his animal and it talks. <coughs> it talks. Hey, why are you hitting me? <laughs> That's how I imagine it would talk. Yeah. <laughs> I just read this last week. So uh -huh. Barred three times. One time the donkey stepped off the road, and the second time he pressed against the rock wall, and the mm. third time he laid down. And then, and then the donkey started talking. Yeah, he tried everything he could do to get, a, to get around it, to avoid going by that angel, and he didn't. And that also, by the way, should tell you something about angels, because even the donkey is afraid of the angel. Did you ever wonder, you know, our Christmas... Christmas Eve angels are kind of cute. And uh, when you look at paintings, the angels are not, they're really attractive. They're pretty. They're glowing and you know, good-looking faces. And, uh, but what you never see in a painting is what angels really look like. And you know, I guess I can't tell you exactly. I couldn't draw you a picture of what they really look like. But I can tell you this. Every time an angel appears... The first thing the angel says is, whoa, don't be afraid. That should tell you something about what it's like to see an angel. That they don't come as these haloed Aryans in white robes with their blonde hair and their blue eyes looking pretty. And they don't come looking like the Christmas Eve angels. Uh, they're kind of frightening. They're menacing looking. They're scary because they come with the authority and the word of God. <sighs> Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Okay? Uh, so, the donkey starts to talk. And the best part of the whole little bit of that story is that he just talks right back to the donkey. It's like nothing is phasing him. Hey, why are you doing that? Well, because you're not moving. <laughs> just, he has a whole conversation with the donkey and never once stopped to think, well, this is sort of strange, isn't it? I've never talked with a donkey before. 
Uh, so anyway, that's Balaam, but there's a lot more to the Balaam story than just the talking donkey. Because then not only does he not get to curse Israel, he then is turned into a prophet. He's turned into a prophet. Now, again, in case you thought that the Bible was all about different things, uh, I'm here to burst your bubble. What does this sound an awful lot like? Somebody with breathing curses on his lips, going out to curse, to kill, meets an angel of the Lord along the way and becomes a servant of the Lord. Saul to Paul. Now I don't remember exactly if it says an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord. But I'll tell you this. If it says the angel of the Lord, it's not an angel. It's Christ. This says, then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow path. Oh, yes. I was suspecting maybe it said that. It's the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. When the angel of the Lord appears, it's not some created angel. It's Christ. Because you notice when it says the angel of the Lord, it's usually at sort of a big deal time and place. And that's when Christ shows up. Uh, so, changing hearts, bringing about repentance. Uh, Balaam and Paul, enemies that become servants. Everything ties together in the Bible. It's beautiful. So here in Numbers 24, he speaks. And this is 15 through 19, if someone wants to read that. 24, 15 through 19. Of 24. Oh, of Numbers. The book of Numbers, chapter 24, verses 15 through 19. Then he uttered his oracle. <clears throat> the, or the oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, the oracle of one whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all of the sons of Shep. Of Sheth. Edom will be conquered, Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Okay. First, oh, we have so much to talk about in so little time. Uh, okay, we'll do it this way. First, when just talking more about similarities between Saul, Paul, and Balaam, look at this, whose eyes are opened. Him who hears the words of God, who has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees and who falls down. Well, this is Paul. It's Saul on the road to Damascus, the bright light, not seeing but hearing. That's an important thing too, that he is unable to see, but he hears the voice. He hears the word and scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized, he sees clearly, he's heard the word, and now he's a servant of Christ. Look at that, isn't that beautiful? Tying it all together. It's nothing new. There, there's a heresy, 
quite uh, prevalent, actually, still, uh, still around now, that says the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is a God of punishment and wrath, of fury and anger and sacrifice and blood. And that the God of the New Testament isn't. He's a nice guy. He wants to be your friend. It's like the George Carlin bit about baseball and football. In football, you play in a stadium that is a gridiron. In baseball, you play in a park. You put the two in such stark contrast that makes it comical. It's like the Old Testament God wants to kill you, but the New Testament God wants to be your friend. But it's not the case. It's all the same. Look what he does. Converting this man to his servant. Scales fall from his eyes too as he sees more clearly. As he hears the word of God. Now, this is the second thing. This is why uh, this text is important for us, especially during Epiphany Tide. How is it that the Magi from the East know about a Christ child. Why is it that they look at a star and say, oh, that's the Christ, let's go meet him. It's not like a big neon sign. It's not like they look up into the sky and they're going, Jesus is here, come see this guy, hey. It's just a star. Why does it matter? They've studied the Old Testament. Okay. Yes. Yes. How do they get the Old Testament? They're out in the East. Iran or Iraq. From Daniel. Oh, yes. From Daniel. Remember the Babylonian captivity. They're taken away into this region, this Eastern region where the Magi are from. And there's the fiery furnace. There's the three young men. There's the lions. All of this, all of these kind of events that take place over there in the east, away from Jerusalem, away from Israel, in foreign lands. And the outcome of all of these events is what? There is no other God than the God of Daniel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is no other God than the God of these men. A decree from the king. And then... That's just sort of the end of the story. But you have to read between the lines. You have to see what it's not saying, or what it's saying by what it's not saying. If the king says, there's no other God than the God of these men, what happens to the whole nation? The whole nation hears about this God because the king made a decree. So now you have this whole region that's heard of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's heard this Torah, and in particular, this passage from Numbers. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. That's why it matters. Magi from the east who know the faith of the Torah from the captivity come because they see the star and they know what it means. This is the one of whom the prophet Moses Recorded by the words of Balaam. Wow, isn't that kind of cool? 
Oh, I knew someone was going to ask that. I think it was, I don't know. I get the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity mixed up. And the date that I have in my mind is, I think, 586. But, and I'm looking at my wife because, oh, she doesn't know better than I do at this time. Uh, 586? We'll say that. That's one of the two captivities. I'll get back to you to make sure that that's right. Okay, uh, but at any rate, so there's this star. And the star means something. Uh, Christ is often called the morning star. Bom, 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 bom. The king and the queen chorals, both by Philip Nikolai. Oh, morning star, how fair and bright. That's Christ. He's the morning star. His birth is proclaimed by a star. He is the light of the Father's face, which we'll see now here uh, in the book of Hebrews. So before we leave Numbers, do you have any questions? This, I know I just, I just threw a lot at you. <clears throat> if not, we're going to jump to Hebrews quickly, and then we're going to look at this text so I can teach you the tune. Uh, okay, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews chapter one. One. Hebrews one, one to three. Okay. Why is it okay to have an icon of Christ like we have hanging up in the narthex? Or to have an image of Christ like I have on this crucifix or like we have on the crucifix above the altar or like we have on the little crucifix on the shelf? But not okay to make a picture of the Father. You don't draw a picture of God the Father. When you look around the church, do you see any pictures of God the Father? You don't, because we don't have any. All you see are pictures of Jesus, icons of Jesus, carvings of Jesus, markings of Jesus, but you never see a picture of the Father. Because it's idolatry to make a picture of the Father. You're making a graven image if you make a picture of the Father. But why is that a graven image and Jesus isn't? Because Jesus came in the flesh. Yes. He is our Savior. Yes. Look at Hebrews. 
what it says, uh, the image of his person, the express image of his person. Who needs to try and figure out what they think God the Father looks like? Often it's a guy with a big long beard. Uh, but that's not a good thing. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Because he's already given you a picture of what he looks like, and it is Christ. Christ is the brightness of the Father's face. So think about this. When Moses goes up to talk to God, and he comes down and his face is glowing because he's seen the glory of God, that magnificent light, and he has to veil his own face, uh, who is that glory that he was up there with? Because, of course, St. John writes in his gospel that no man has seen the Father. But Moses talked with God face to face. What are we to make of that? Well, Hebrews tells us Christ is the glory of the Father. He is the eternal light that shines from the face of the Father. To see the glory of the Father is not to see a big old man with a big beard and a shiny face and a halo, but it is to see Christ. If you want to see the fullness of what the Father looks like, look to the image of the Father, that is, Jesus. It's not idolatry to look at Jesus because God has given you that image. He said, hey, this is what I look like. I don't look like a calf made of gold. I don't look like the, uh, well, never mind, I won't say that. That's a cheap shot at the Catholics. I'll be charitable. Um, I don't look like Moloch. I don't look like Baal, the fish-headed god. I don't look like Ashtoreth the fertility pole. I look like this. Like a man in flesh and blood hanging on a tree for the redemption of man. That's what I look like. I've given you my image. And then you sing hymns like, On my heart imprint your image. Look at that. Christ on your heart. The sign of the cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the Lord. Well, that's from the baptismal liturgy. On my heart, imprint your image. The image of Christ. The sign of the cross. That's the image of God. So from the early days of the church, they said, well, we'll make icons of Christ because that's the icon of the Father. Because God said, I want you to have an image of me and this is what I want the image to be. And we're not, we don't speculate about, well, what does the father look like? So then when you have a child, like let's say Tegan is just totally infatuated with that picture of Jesus up front. Okay. I mean with the blood and it, she just, yep. she just loves that picture. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so when you ask her, if she says that that's God and not Jesus, she's not wrong? No, of course not. Well, Jesus is God. I know, that's why when you said that a while ago, I didn't get that. Yeah, I'm, Jesus is God. I'm not, this is, there's nothing to do with the divinity 
of Jesus. Jesus is God and man, Bible math. He has two natures, but they all add up to 100%. 100% God, 100% man, 100%, not 200. So he is... I'm, yes, okay, uh, yes, Jesus is God. Forgive me, I was unclear. I didn't ask the question in the best way. Um, when you read the, well, when you read the Bible, often God is used as shorthand for the Father. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. And it can get sometimes confusing because they're all God. Uh, but you don't depict the Father is what, that's really what, that was my question. Why don't you see a picture of what the Father looks like? You see a picture of what Jesus looks like, and really you see a picture of the Holy Spirit, if only in the picture of the dove. But that's, the Holy Spirit made himself known as a dove at the baptism of Jesus. So that's what he looks like. But the Father, here's the thing about the Trinity, folks. Nobody in the Trinity will ever point to themselves. except for Jesus. But Jesus is sort of sneaky about that. Because Jesus says, well, to God alone be all glory, while he also says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus only points to himself insofar as salvation is concerned. That's the caveat. But other than that, nobody in the Trinity ever points to themselves. The father doesn't say, look at me, I made the world. He says, look at my son. Look at this spirit. The spirit only really does one thing, and that's point to Jesus and say, hey, look. Look at this guy. He's got these gifts. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them to you. Here, come, but this is the guy you want. Don't look at me. Don't. He's the one you want to look at. And Jesus says, I'll give you a helper. It's the Holy Spirit to come. And, and the, the glory be to the Father. It's the Father's will, not mine. And uh, all of that. So the Trinity all points to each other, even within the Godhead. So the Father says, well, I don't, you don't need to know. I don't need to give you a picture of me. Well, here, my son, that's the picture of me. My only begotten, the one in whom there is the fullness of me. The one who reflects what the fullness of my being is. That's part of what it means to beget. To reflect the fullness of self. So, Josh, you have begotten Brian. Which doesn't mean you and your wife had a child. It means that you have given of the fullness of yourself and that Brian is the reflection of the fullness of your very being down to its core. The fullness of your love, the fullness of your compassion, your care, the fullness of your character and your very essence, flesh and blood. So when God talks, when the Father talks about his son as my only begotten. He says, this is the one in whom the fullness of myself is and in whom the fullness of myself may be seen. And that is part of the epiphany. Do you know what the word epiphany means? To reveal. Yes, it's a revelation. 
You, you, you think of, or you, you read a book and you learn something you didn't know and you go, boy, that's really an epiphany. That's a real revelation. It's a revelation of, in this case, the fullness of God in the flesh. What it means to be his only begotten son. What it means when he says, the glory of my being, who I am, the brightness of my face. This is it. And especially as it ties into today, which is the baptism of Christ, when the Father speaks from heaven the words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is the brightness of my face. Yes. This is, go back to earlier here in the, in the lesson. Uh-huh. Did Moses, in the presence of God, did he actually see God or was, I'm not going to pull a term, overwhelmed by the brightness of the presence of God? Oh, sure. So he, perhaps, he was in the presence of God but didn't actually see God. No, he saw God. He didn't see the Father, per se. Um, and this is transfiguration. Your question is really not about Moses. It's about transfiguration. Why, you wonder? Well, on the Mount of Transfiguration, first of all, what happens to Jesus? Yeah, he is transfigured. The name of the day, the transfiguration, because Jesus is transfigured. And what does he look like? He is shining brightly. He is a bright white light so that even his disciples have to, oh, I don't know if I can look at that. A glory that is hidden is revealed in Christ. The glory, the brightness of the Father's face. And who appears with him to converse on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, yes. Moses is the greatest of what group of people? The prophets. And Elijah is the greatest of which group of people? This is sort of a trick. The prophets. Uh, because here's the thing. <laughs> Moses is a, a patriarch, and he represents the fullness of the Torah, the fullness of the law. And Elijah is the fullness of the prophets. Yeah. So they are the fullness of the entirety of the word of God. Even Isaiah is not as big time, big league prophet as Elijah is. Elijah is sort of king prophet. Until who? Jesus. John the Baptist. Yeah, I mean, yes, Jesus. But the last prophet is John the Baptist. <laughs> Yeah, John the Baptist. So John, well, and that's, see, there's the thing about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. He is all of the prophets together in one. He is Moses, he is Elijah, he is Isaiah. He's all of them, all together in one. Isn't that kind of cool? The culmination of all of that which has come before, standing and pointing at the one that all of them talked about, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hey, he's here. Everything that has been spoken and written and taught and preached and believed up until this point now takes on a person in John the Baptizer and looks at Jesus and preaches for the last time. 
This is the one to come, the, the promised Savior. So at the transfiguration, then, you have the fullness of all Scripture. And Moses and Elijah are more than just symbolic figures there. Uh, also because they appear. They're not ghosts. So what's the deal? Well, what does Jesus talk about with them? Do you remember from the text? Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. He's transfigured. And they speak about his exodus. His exodus. Which is greater than Moses' exodus. It's from death to life leading his people. The exodus from the land of Hades, the land of death, the land of hell, into the real promised land. And this time it's not going to take 40 years. And with Elijah, he talks about his exodus, the coming Messiah, and what the Messiah is going to do, and where the Messiah comes from. He talks about all of this with them together. Moses goes up to the mountain and receives the law, which is more than just law, as you should know now. Elijah is in a cave and sees, it just says, sees God appear in a bright light and talks with him. But it's all happening simultaneously. It's like a bubble in time. Christ appears and gives Moses the ten words and speaks to Moses all about what is to come, about the great exodus. And Moses goes down and is the great patriarch who leads the people and who preaches and teaches to them. What does he preach and teach? Look at the Pentateuch. Look at the first five books of the Bible. What is it all about? It's all about Christ. And to the prophet Elijah, he speaks about himself and who he is and what he is coming to do. And Elijah sees Christ and knows him and speaks his words and all the prophets speak his words. It's a blip in time and it's beautiful that all of these things are happening right there at the Mount of Transfiguration. That the glory that shines from the Father's face is in fact Christ. Here is the thing that you have to understand about this. I know it seems weird to talk about time this way because we're so used to going, starts here, goes here, and the events take place in chronological order. But time is not so much like that. Time is sort of like a ball of yarn in many ways, all twisted and tied up together, especially really when it pertains to Christ. So the transfiguration is an event that happens in time and outside of time. Can you think of another event that happens inside and outside of time? Something that happens once and yet is happening eternally. The crucifixion. How do you think we get body and blood on the altar? Because the crucifixion is an eternal reality. It is an eternal reality. It doesn't happen again and again and again in history. It happens one time in history. Christ died and was raised and ascended. That's a historical fact. But it's also a theological and a philosophical fact that that sacrifice continues for eternity. The lamb who was slain is in heaven on the altar of God for eternity. His blood pours out upon you from the one time 
on the cross that pertains to, uh, or that uh, is persistent through eternity. Okay? So time, time's not as rigid as you think that it is. Uh, so Christ speaks, and this is, the, this is what's so important. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> we'll, well, we'll get to that. Uh, so uh, if you have a thing, I need more space. Did you ever make shadow puppets with your kids? How do you make a shadow puppet? Okay. Yeah. You've got your thing, and we're going to do it like this. There is your thing. Very real thing. And then. That's a flashlight. <laughs> I went to music school, not art school. Okay? And then what happens on the other side? So, think about the Bible like this. And the person of Christ like this. Christ is incarnate. Yes. Yes. Christ dies. Yes. All of Scripture is about this one thing right here. Yes. But, this thing casts a shadow that permeates through all of history. That when you look at the brightness of the Father's face, Moses on the, mount of, uh, on the mountain receiving the words of the Lord, and there's a brightness and transfiguration, and there's the brightness, and Christ speaking to them face to face, there is a shadow that is cast through all of history, that the incarnate Christ, the Christ who is flesh and blood and dies for humanity, extends through all time. Does this kind of make sense? Does that, is that a long-winded, acceptable answer to your question? <laughs> Moses, it, the short answer is this. Yes, Moses sees God face to face. No, he doesn't see the Father face to face. Yes, he sees the Son face to face. The eternal word in flesh that he speaks to. That gives him the word. The word speaks words. I have to warp your minds to think about time this way. Um, because it's so counterintuitive to every way that we think about time. But when we talk about Christ, and when Hebrews talks about it, when the hymn text, when the church talks about Christ as the light of God, all of this is what it refers to. The brightness of the Father's face. The, the one who is the person that is the glory of God. Uh, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, the presence of God. Well, that's Christ. The pillar of cloud and fire, the light. It's Christ. Uh, so, now let's look at this hymn. We didn't really talk about the text much, but in a way we did. There's a lot going on in this text, and uh, I would urge you to read it, meditate on it. The third stanza particularly Remember, Lord of life and grace, how once to save our fallen race, you put our human vesture on, 
and came to us as Mary's son. Beautiful. It's the incarnation, the humiliation of Christ. Now, I'm going to sing the tune through one time, and then I'll sing the first stanza so you can hear it two times because it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Just law the tune, and then I'll sing the first stanza, and then we'll sing the next few stanzas together. Ready? Questions. All right, we'll see you at the high altar.